that's what I'm really enjoying. That's, you know, being able to be on the floor and, and provide and create an experience because that's what separates one venue to the next is the experience. You know, people go out with the expectation for an experience. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Restaurants are often a place to socialise, to take our senses on a journey and take us away from the humdrum of life. For many lured to hospitality, it's often a sensory experience that captures them. But what happens if the senses you rely on are taken away? Wilson Choya is the owner of Good Gilbert in Adelaide, South Australia. Wilson, how are you? Yeah, really well, thank you. Really well, basking in what seems to be spring sunshine. It is. The spring's arrived and it's um, the weather's quite beautiful, actually. Um, you've had a pretty good little period of time winning some awards for Good Gilbert. What's that been like? We have. Um, humbling. Um, it's It's been pretty, pretty surreal. Um, you know, two and a half years ago when we first set out to open a neighbourhood bar, um, you know, our, our intention was just to really build ourselves in into the to the local community you know we're in the hmm. midst of covid and and for us it was yeah it's it's wild where where we started to where we are it feels it feels like a dream come true it's a tricky time to start a business uh, it was a tricky time for any business but to start one it's an interesting decision what, what was that like for you yeah um i think oh it it, it it wasn't a decision that was taken lightly um, but it was also quite an interesting time and quite opportunistic as well. Um, you know, when we, whenever we set out to look at a site, it was never about, you know, looking to open a site. It was very much, you know, dependent on the venue itself. Um, so when we first walked through the doors of, of what is now Good Gilbert, August 2020, um, it, w- it was the venue and it was the foundations of the site that really spoke to us and, and looking at what was in the area, it kind of felt right for right now. Um, so we kind of jumped in there and, and did some numbers and kind of looked at the whole project and, you know, came to realize pretty quickly that as, as scary as at the time as it was during COVID, I think that, you know, Unfortunately, but fortunately for us, a lot of venues closing down. So suddenly the market is flooded with really great secondhand equipment, um, you know, like the space that, that we were we were looking at. You know, you've got landlords who really want to develop sites. They want to get people in there and, you know, they want to reinvest in the communities. And, and you know, thankfully, we've got one of the most incredible landlords, I think, that anyone can kind of hope for in the industry. Um and kind of looking at that, it was it what felt like a very silly time to be doing it. I think you know if you really ran the numbers and you really looked at it closely and and, and planned the concepts, um, it, it it was okay. And you saw a lot of that development in other businesses where they kind of flexed and and remodeled and restructured and continued to trade. And I think we kind of looked at what everyone was doing, um, either successfully or unsuccessfully. Um, and built that all into the business model. Like, you know, yes, we had a, a declaration of state emergencies, South Australia, which gave us um, the ability to sell takeaway booze without a takeaway liquor license. But we got on the front foot. We got a full takeaway liquor license from the get-go to, to coincide with our, our trading, drinking liquor license. And, you know, that was a absolute godsend because, you know, within a few months of, of opening Good Gilbert, you know, we 
South Australia, which is probably the least affected state. Um, we had an outbreak and so we got shut down, but because we had a takeaway liquor license, we became um, a an, necessary business that could trade. So, you know, when, when we built the site and when we designed it and did the fit out, we got rid of all the solid windows that were at the front of the building. We put bifolds because, you know, the mindset was if we get locked down, we need to be able to trade. And if we need to trade, we need to be able to have contactless like spaces. Um, but it kind of built into that idea of how beautiful Goodwood was and and how green and leafy it was and bringing that outside in. You know, we, we, we weren't a big space, but we could make it feel bigger by making it airy and bright. I want to touch on the approach that you had that you mentioned just a little while ago. Um, most people have a dream of their sort of first venue and what their first restaurant looks like and then that's what they do. But you were looking for a site and deciding sort of what works there. Tell us about that process. Um, yeah, so I was so fortunate that when I was 19, I, um, I, I got a job with a couple of London restaurateurs called uh, Chris Corbin and Jeremy King at the Wolseley. Um, and I subsequently ended up working for them for nine and a half years in the end. Um, and what was both incredible and great about that whole scenario was not only did I have no bloody idea who these guys were when I first walked through the doors of the Wolseley for a trial shift, I was just like, yeah, this place is pretty big, <laughs> um, you know, and, and on that trial shift, you know, Liz Hurley was sitting in there having breakfast and I was just like, this is wild. Like, what have I just walked into? Um, and then over the course of, of nine and a half years, I kind of, you know, moved up within the company or across, you know, I, be, I became quite an integral part of any opening process. Um, so we opened eight restaurants and one hotel while I was with them. Yeah, it was pretty incredible. Um, and kind of as, you know, it wasn't always in the same role, you know, sometimes it would have been, you know, being a barista to being a head barista on the other side or, you know, then moving on to being a bartender or a, a, an assistant bar manager. And that was as the progress went. And then once I got to the bar manager level, um, which was in 2013, a year after we opened Colbert, which was to this day my absolute favorite London um, cafe, if you will, is just the epitome of what you expect in Paris. You know, beautiful tiles. You know, it, the, the whole venue tells the story, and and this ties into where Good Gilbert comes into it because as each opening went through, each site had its own personality and its own sort of like individual. Um, process that stood it apart from the other venues, but you knew they were the same. Um, and so, what what Jeremy had always said at each new opening, it was like you know, never, you know, he he never walks into a building with a preset expectation of what's going to go into the venue. You know, the, the the Wolseley for those that know it in Green Park in London is just huge and it is a demanding building and there's marble pillars that extend you know 30 meters into the ceiling and you got this beautiful tile feature across the floor and you got this quaint chinese artwork painted off you know behind the bar and it, it's an incredible venue but then you walk into into colbert and sloan square and suddenly you know you've got you've got wooden rich kind of like bunkette seating with dark red leather and you've got brass fixtures you've got artwork 
that would make you cry. Like the bar had its own sort of era of art, which is all about the Royal Court Theatre, which was situated right next door. And, you know, then, then the dining room was about, you know, the French cafes and then so on and so forth. So that whole concept was, you know, never, never go into it preconceived. Let the space talk to you and kind of really guide you as to what it can do. Um, because, you know, the last thing you want to do is go into a venue that is a hundred square meters, which is what Good Gilbert was and be like, I'm going to put a 90 seater restaurant and I'm going to have a one by one meter kitchen. Um, and so that's, that's what kind of led us into what became Good Gilbert is, you know, there, there was no real, um, tailored wine service in that part of Adelaide in regards to being able to get anything from anywhere, so to speak. Um, I think that answered your question. I also think I went off on a real tangent. <laughs> no, it was, a, it was a great answer and fascinating approach. Um, what, tell us a little bit about Good Gilbert. What you, you mentioned it's been two and a half years now and you've be, become a real sort of hub of the community. What, what is the offering that you have there? Um, so it's, it's changed a lot since when we first opened. Um, when we first opened, we had this kind of idea that it was just going to be predominantly a wine bar. You know, we opened and we had 80 bottles of wine on there. And at the time I had two other business partners and between the three of us, we, um, we did everything. We did the front of house. One of us was always in the kitchen cooking. One of us was always doing the, the, the floor and kind of rotating around. And it was, it was pretty, it was a pretty unique scenario. Um, and it kind of went off with a bigger bang than what we thought. And suddenly we had this ambition to, to grow it. Um, and then, you know, kind of went through a period of growth. And at that point, um, we decided with my business partners that they weren't going to be involved anymore. So I bought them out of the business. Um, so this is when it was only six months old. And then kind of that's when we started realizing like, well, the food demand is growing the demand for the wine is growing. So at this point, the wine list had grown to about 200 bottles. We employed a couple of really great chefs um, that then went on to do some incredible sites elsewhere. Um, and it naturally, the, the business grew naturally and really organically. Like we really listened to what was being asked of us from, from that, from the customers, because, you know, we, we made a point of talking to everyone that came in, you know, it, it was less about us opening a venue to make money, but we really wanted to connect with the people that were coming in. And, you know, I can tell you nine times out of 10, every time someone walks to that door, I know who they are. I know what they like to drink and wow. I'm probably going to disappear for 10 minutes and chat to them. <laughs> that sounds like the ideal uh, venue. I, I want to explore sort of what you're doing there and also the big changes you've had in your life shortly, but take us back to when you were young, where did you grow up and what sort of role did food play in your family? Yeah, so I uh, I actually grew up in Sydney um, on the North Shore um, and we were a big family. So um, I'm the second youngest. Um, I've got a darling sister who's a year younger than I and then I've got an older sister who's two years older than myself and then an older brother that's two years older than her and then an eldest brother that's a year above her so within there's five of us and we're seven years apart um yeah mum and dad are nuts um um so food was obviously a huge thing for us um but probably what is quite surprising is it was never about the food itself 
um, you know, because we were such a large family and, you know, especially as, as we grew up and we all got into different things like mum and dad are thrown left, right and centre, you know, whether we're driving or not, you know, when, we, it, you know, the house became a hotel, you know, people checking in and out. Um, so, but, but food became about, about just being together um, and, and just like catching up because that was, you know, sometimes the only time where we'd see each other and it is to this date um as a, as a family the only time we ever get together is to have a meal you know it's not about really anything else when did you first sort of get an inkling of a career in hospitality what what sort of lured you in um so mum and dad were you know we 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 had a relatively good upbringing mum and dad did quite well um so i think as soon as i could dad basically said go out and get a job i'm not paying for you anymore um, and there were quite, quite a few arguments back and forth as you would as a, as a kid growing up that you'd no longer have pocket money. Um, but I did and I, I went out and got a job and, um, my brother at the time was actually a concierge for a shopping center. Um, and he got me a job as like a runner, essentially just like delivering posts to all the different shops and, you know, just like helping guests around the place and all that sort of stuff. And during that time, I got to know one of the cafe owners. Um, and then one day he was like, Hey, I need some help in the kitchen this weekend. Can you, um, can you, can you jump in and do some dishes? And I was like, yeah, whatever. Like, that's cool. Um, so yeah, so I, I started as a, as a dishy in this cafe in St. Ives and it was called seven wives at the time. And it was run this run by this really old school German hospo guy called Jakob Schmidt. Um, oh, I have so much time for that, man. I would love to know where he is these days. You know, I was 14 and a half and I don't know how much trouble this is going to get any of us in, but like it got to the point on Friday nights because he lived around the corner from my mum and dad. And so he dropped me home and we'd each drink a crown lager on the way home. And it was, it, it was a pretty wild first experience in, into this side of the industry. Um, and then it kind of went from there. I ended up, I ended up, you know, quitting working where my brother was and working at this cafe and, one day the barista got, well, the barista called in sick. Um, so they threw me on the coffee machine and I blundered my way through it. Um, and then, and then I was like, Hey, this is, this is fucking sick. This is way better than washing dishes. Um, and then, and then I stayed with that cafe for years. And I think by the, by 2017, um, so I was in year 11 at school. Um, and I, I was managing this entire cafe um, and it had since been bought by someone else. So Yarkum had disappeared and was bought by another really beautiful man um, who, who's still in my life. Um, and yeah, and, and the bug was there and, and school finished and um, I had a cadetship lined up with Deloitte to, to go into finance. Um, and my brother, my eldest brother, um, me and you, meanwhile, all kids are still living at home. I've just finished school. All kids are living at home. Like, fucking move out. But anyway, uh, my eldest brother had met this girl from London who was out here on a working holiday visa. Um, and he was like, I want to go back. I want to be with her. And I just finished school. And I was like, yeah, like, I could do with a bit of a break from Sydney. Um, so I, at the time, deferred my cadetship, bought a one-way ticket to London with my brother, and and off we went. And then... Yeah, got stuck into London, and I think I before I worked at the Woolsey, I had I had another job in a in a cocktail bar, um, but I got fired from that. 
but yeah, that was pretty funny. And then, yeah, a day later, got a phone call from the Wolsey, so all's well. <laughs> you mentioned that you were there for almost a decade. Um, what were the sort of, I know you worked with a group for that same time, but what were the really sort of important people and, and moments over that decade for you that sort of really changed your approach and the direction that you went in? Um, I think Chris and Jeremy, for me, are probably my biggest industry mentors. Um, you know, Jeremy and I still exchange emails. Um, Chris and I have a have a good Facebook message now and then. and But also his kids who are in the industry over there have, have a very successful restaurant group. Um, so I speak to them a lot. Um, so I think... That, that for me was pinnacle because that's taught me everything I know. Chris and, Chris and Jeremy were very generous with their venues. It's always about, you know, instilling this idea of, of, of the venue having its own personality and, and carrying that detail the whole way through. And I think that taught me a lot and, and that is a big standout moment. But then also the key idea of hospitality is what they taught me while I was there. Um, you know, I... N- when was it at this point I was the group beverage manager and for the first time ever, they decided to do a private event or a ticketed event at the Wolseley for new year's Eve. And I think it was like 250 pounds per person. Um, and then that was without drinks, but they cleared out. And if anyone knows the Wolseley, they cleared out the center of the dining room and that became a dance floor up on the mezzanine on either side of the restaurant. They got rid of the, the tables up there, which were the seventies the and the eighties, I think it was. And they had an orchestra on either side and there was a big confetti cannon. And anyway, so because it was the first event, you know, they'd asked me to be there for it and kind of look after the beverage side of it. Um, and it was incredible. And Annie Lennox was there that night and I was looking after her and she asked me to dance, not after, not for the first song after midnight, but the second one. And like one of the most surreal moments that I look back on so fondly is dancing with Annie Lennox on New Year's <laughs> Eve while my wife was on some spa retreat with her parents in Germany. <laughs> <laughs> That's extraordinary. Yeah. Um, it was, yeah. An incredible time. Um, and then just meeting a lot of really young dynamic people over there, I think really instilled this idea that, a venue needs to be accessible. Um, you know, it, it can't be about your pride and your ego. It needs to be about itself. And, you know, the way that the business grows is allowing, you know, that reception from from the customers and the people that walk through your door to tell you the direction to take it. Not within guidelines. You're not going to take everything that's said with, with gusto. But, yeah. You spent a decade in, in London, a real formative sort of time in your life. Tell us about coming back to Australia. What led to you coming back and what was it like? Um, so I'd, I'd kind of hit the ceiling at the company. I couldn't go any further um, in, in regards to my position. And, you know, I'm, at, at the time I was very ambitious and very driven to succeed. Um and, you know, at, at 26, being the group beverage manager for Corbin and King and, and having nowhere to go, it was like, well, what do I do now? Um, and, and, and also at the time, the company had just gone through a period of, of investor consolidation and then sold off a good portion of the business that was held by a group of individuals to a larger hospitality group um, called Minor International. And they kind of came in and, and for anyone that's that's seen or read or followed the story, it's it's quite sad and very depressing. But in the, over COVID, they eventually went through a hostile takeover by this minor group 
Um, so I was with the company for about 18 months when they first kind of initiate, well, well, when they first bought into the business and kind of seeing the way that they operated, it kind of felt uneasy. And I think just the culmination of, of being in London for so long and, you know, being in the position that I was in and then this new company coming in and trying to change everything and change the soul of the business, it kind of felt like the natural time to move on. And so my wife and I, we just kind of like oohed and aahed about what we wanted to do. Um, we we decided we definitely wanted to leave London, but it was like, well, where do we go? Um, New York was one discussion, um, but we we have a have and had a dog with us in the UK, and it it we felt like maybe another big city wasn't right at the time. Um, so I didn't want to go back to Sydney. I'd kind of visited enough while I was away to to feel like I wasn't quite ready to to be back in Sydney. Um so the kind of decision was either in Melbourne or, or Adelaide. Um my mum is an Adelaide girl born and bred. Um she's she lives back here now but obviously having grown up in Sydney she was away for a long time and my grandparents were here and my brother had just gotten a job with Port Adelaide and it was just it felt good to move to Adelaide. And then when we started looking at the hospitality side of it I remember the day my wife's visa was approved for Australia, walking into my CFO's office at Corbin and King and being like, right, I quit. Isabel's visa's come through. Zalika, here's my three months notice. Um, <laughs> and she was a bit like, wait, what, what? Um, and so I kind of told her that we're going to go to Adelaide and um, her husband, who was also Australian, we had, we had a chat about it. Um, and just everything, all the signs pointed to Adelaide for everything, it, you know, the accessibility to, to the wine regions around it, you know, my family ties here, you know, if we ever wanted to do something, it felt like it could be the right city to do it because the, the industry looking in is very exciting, but there's plenty of opportunity for growth. And then, yeah, that decided it. <laughs> Well, um, Adelaide is a wonderful city, and um, but it's very different to London. Was it, was it hard for you to adjust to the change? Huge. Really, really tough. Um, probably compounded by the fact that Isabel and I ended up staying with my parents for the first six months when we got here. And after living out of home for, you know, 10 years and then shacking up with mum and dad in this little townhouse it was yeah it wasn't ideal and and that made a lot tough a lot tougher so i kind of picked up a a, a job as quick as i could just to kind of get me out of the house and get me on my feet um and isabel isabel was going to take a bit more time to settle especially because she'd never lived in australia before being german um and yeah i think you know i i I struggled to find a, a company or a business that I really gelled with and that I felt like I wanted to be a part of, like I did back in the UK. Um, and then I landed on Louis Schofield's uh, door one day, who is one of the owners of Hellbound's Wine Bar in Adelaide, uh, along with Mark Reginato. And, you know, we had a, we had a, a couple of coffees one morning at Hey Jupiter and it was the night after he'd had a massive party with Tara Sakota the night before and so we kind of went down to the bar and he just did this you know the smell you walk in everyone's clearly left the other night absolutely hammered and no anyone who knows Louis or Reggie would know that Louis and I love Louis and if he listens to this I'm sorry but Louis, if Louis's done, he'll walk out, but he'll come back the next day and clean it. But he's like, nah, fuck it. I'll come back and deal with it later. Whereas Reggie would be like, no, 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 it gets done. I'm going to sleep in tomorrow and then I don't need to think about it. So 
Louis close the night before after this party with Tara Sikoda and, and what have you. Um, and yeah, and I, I guess that for me was like a real eye opening experience. Like these guys are fucking rock stars. Like I'm here for it. Um, and then, yeah. And then had, had a couple of conversations with Reggie and everything felt really right. Um, and then, yeah. So ended up joining them as, as the manager for a bit. I remember kind of Louis. Louis's trial for me was putting three blind wines in front of me and asking me to tell him all about them. Um, and I think of the three wines, two of them I got perfect. And then the last one, I got a variety and a region wrong, but the rest was right. Um, I wouldn't be able to do that these days, but yeah. Tell us about sort of um, the beginnings of creating your own venue. How, how did it come about? Um, I think... You know, I, I joined Hellbound right before COVID and then we went through COVID together and um, just seeing the way that things kind of like happened. I think, you know, I, COVID is very much a time where, where operators have to, have to look after their own and, you know, that you need to make sure that you can pay your bills and pay your staff. And I kind of felt like what I wanted to do and, and what, what the boys had to do kind of didn't quite align um and then about the same time because at this point we also my wife and i decided to stupidly open a cafe um so we were running a cafe during the day and then i was at hellbound at night um and i think with things slowing down at hellbound and then kind of like consolidating and i need i i, I got the bug again to, to for the industry and, and falling in love with it having worked with them and and who they you know introduced me to and the relationships I built, I built through Hellbound just gave me the, that love bug again that I'd been missing since I got into Adelaide. Um, and then that's what really drove me to, to go on and do something. That was the idea behind opening the cafe was that would be a foot in the door of, of owning a venue in Adelaide. Um, and then, yeah, that pushed us to go on and find something else. You, you mentioned uh, the century test with the wines that you did, um, but your, your life has changed significantly now. You had, a, you had an accident. Tell us about that night and, and the impact it's had on you. Um, yeah, I think it's, it, that's a tough one. Um, every, every day I feel quite differently about it. Uh, these days I feel better and better. Um, so it was, where are we now? August, September. So probably 15 months ago, it was the end of June of last year, 2022. Um, we were just gearing up for the expansion of the bar. So at that point, we had bought the business next door. We'd done all the plans. Um, we were due to get keys to the venue at the end of July. Um, and it was a very exciting time, especially going into winter, you know, having all this, all this stuff planned. You know, we were feeling pretty G'd up in the business. Um, and we were doing this really cool collab in the bar, which is something we'd done occasionally working with like other operators that we just adore. Um, and it was with, uh, Jimmy and Joe from SPC pizza, um, based down in Ordinga. Well, he's the, the head chef at the sloping Inn, but they run their own pizza and pasta club on the side, which is really, really cool. So they were doing a pizza night with us and we thought, well, fuck it. Let's like really send it. We'll make it like really fun, you know? Sav was working with us at that time and Sav's creativity is just wild. And you put them in a kitchen with someone like Jimmy who does pizzas. Well, it was just pizzas at this time. And like you're in for a bit of a party. So we decided to do like a, a full 
party theme around it. We made pina coladas venue and we did all sorts of stuff. So we're doing a pina colada tasting on a Tuesday night. You know, we had a few of the gang there, a few of our regulars and I was behind the bar. So I was making all these different pina coladas. I would taste and then let them drink. Um, so it got a bit rowdy between them, but have, knowing that I was just tasting because I wanted to actually taste each one, I wasn't really interested in drinking per se. Um, so anyway, ended up closing up the bar. Everyone was kind of heading home. Um, a few of them decided to hang around. So I was like, yeah, just kind of like you guys know the drill, lock up and do your thing. I got on my scooter um, and was scootering home. <laughs> Um, and you know, at this point I'd say throughout the evening, I'd had one full standard drink. I had a full tin of beer sealed in my breast pocket on my jacket for when I got home. Um, and I was just like ready to get home. I was excited, you know, a few really great things coming up and then just came around the corner a bit too quick. Um, I have no recollection if it was a rock or a pothole, but it must've been something along those lines, but. Next thing I knew, I kind of woke up um, and I was just lying on the ground. The scooter was in one direction. The helmet had bounced off my head. My bag was one direction. My glasses were somewhere else. And I was just like, what the actual fuck just happened? Um, And I kind of looked up to my left and I could literally see my garage door entrance. Like I was so close to home. Um. So I managed to to pull my phone out of my pocket and I kept trying to call Izzy and she didn't answer. And so I kind of managed to get up WhatsApp and I just went, help, help, help. Um, And then I saw the garage door come out and then she came just running out. Um, And at this point, I've kind of like tried to collect myself and kind of stand up and I was on fire. I felt dizzy, but like my body was on fire and I was just like, Jesus, like what the fuck just happened? my beer did not break, which was incredible. <laughs> um, so anyway, so I finally got up with, with Izzy and kind of collected our things and moved inside and, you know, I was bleeding from the back of the head and I just felt awful. And Izzy was like, right, let's call an ambulance. I'm like, no, no, don't be ridiculous. You know, at this point there's like a real serious and still is a very serious issue with ramping in Adelaide. Um, I was like, don't be ridiculous. We literally live like 10, we live a five minute drive from the Royal Adelaide. Um, so anyway, we called the emergency line and just kind of like spoke to them and they're like, we should send an ambulance. And we're like, no, 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 it's okay. Um, so they, they wanted, because of the pain ricocheting down my back, you know, they were worried about my neck, but I was kind of moving. Okay. So they were fine with like us driving there. So we got there, um, went into emergency, they gave me a couple of painkillers and then I laid on the floor for about six hours until we finally got seen. Um, went into another bed. They left me on the bed for an hour before finally send me for, sending me for an x-ray. Came back. The doctor had a quick chat, looked over everything else and was like, okay, well, you know, you can either stay here or you can go home and we'll call you with the results. And I was like, okay, well, this is all really fucking weird and a bit shit, but you know, we're tired and we're frustrated. And at this point I was just like, I just want to go home. Like I just want to sleep. Um, so went home. Um, and I think, you know, two hours later got woken up with a phone call from the doctor saying, Hey, you've broken your back. Um, if you feel any numbness or tingling, please call an ambulance. 
otherwise don't fucking move for two weeks. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that was a bit of a shock. So I just kind of like semi rolled over and kicked Izzy awake and we kind of sent a group message out to the people that needed to know that I was going to be out for a little bit. Um, and then I kind of woke up later and just like my, f- my whole head was swollen and just like excruciating pain everywhere. And I just thought, you know, it's probably just the shock. And then a couple of days went on and I just kept waking up with just the most awful headaches. Um, and then I was like, look, this isn't right. So I went and saw my GP, um, she, you know, she managed to slip me in because of the urgency of it. And she was like, right, you know, what did the MRI say from the hospital? And she was just like, what are you talking about? And I was like, what? Like, so then they never did an MRI, you know, the, the hospital never did any of that. It was just an x-ray of my back. Um, so she ran a pretty thorough um, concussion test on me. And she's like, yeah, look, this is, this is pretty significant, but there's not much we can do about it now. So she gave me a pretty hefty prescription to do some painkillers and was like, you know, I'm going to call you every couple of days. We're going to run this test over the phone sort of thing and we'll kind of play it by ear. Um, so once the headaches kind of like pulled back, thanks to the painkillers, like, you know, I started feeling better. Like I wasn't up and about so much, but I could, I could move around relatively head pain free. The physical pain was still there, but, um, and then it was a, oh, it would have been almost two weeks after the accident. Um, I'd been invited to this and I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but I'm going to say it and I'm just going to be very quiet about any names and stuff that I use. I got invited to this ridiculous lunch um, that su- a supplier occasionally hosts at occasional restaurants. And it's a pretty insane um, wine offering. And it's the kind of event that if you ever say no to, you you never get invited back sort of thing. So I was like, absolutely, I'll come. Um, so I went and I'm sitting at this table full of some of the state's industry leaders of wine, drinking some of the most insane wine I've ever seen in front of me. And they're talking about it. And I'm just like, what the fuck are they on about? Like, I'm, I'm not picking up anything. And then, I, then the kind of the, the penny started to drop and I started alternating between the wines I was smelling and I couldn't, I couldn't differentiate like to the point that I was like, I'm actually not smelling anything. Like, I just think like it's the nostalgia of what I think I'm smelling because I know that what the wines are. Um, and then I ended up, you know, I, I sat through the rest of the lunch quite quiet um, and ended up kind of rushing out of there and kind of went home and started trying to smell things. And yeah. And then kind of all went tits up from there, went back to my GP and she's like, this is really bad. Um, She sent me to a neurologist and neurologist was like, smell this, taste this. And all of this had been expedited, like considering that I'd gone public with this just because it was, it was just easier at the point at the time. Um, Well, I thought it was easier at the time, but you know, my appointments were two days apart. Like I wasn't waiting weeks on weeks on weeks. Um, and then ended up going to get some pretty, pretty nasty MRIs done and a few different variations of that. Um, and then I'll never forget. It was the day of my grandmother's 80th, 90th apologies. My grandmother's 90th at my brother's house. And I had to go get these scans done 
uh, all these other scans done in the morning. So, and I'd been at a wedding the night before and I was designated driver because everything that was going on with my head. Um, and anyway, so <laughs> I remember leaving and because of the way that the system is, which I can completely understand, you know, you try and pry the texts when they're doing these images, of your brain, I'm like, Oh, what do you see? Is it well? And they're like, don't know. We just take the pictures, dude. I was like, what the fuck? Um, but they gave me a copy of all the scans when I left and I've got a, I got a few friends in the, in the medical profession. Um, so I, I rushed back to my brother's house where he was hosting the 90th cause I had to pick up, um, the cakes from my grandmother from Sav who had baked them for her. And then, so I grabbed the cakes, ran to my brother's house, realized that the, all the scans were on a CD. I was like, who the fuck has a CD drive? And of course my dad has a CD drive. Perfect. So I jump on his laptop, I'm looking at the scans and I'm sending pictures to people. Um, and then, yeah, kind of wasn't too much certainty because the people that, that were looking at them aren't neurologists. You know, one was a cardiovascular surgeon and, you know, some anaesthetists and what have you. Um, but the general idea was doesn't look great, but don't know. Um, and then I had to go get some, some urine tests done as well. Um, because they were looking for something. I don't know. I don't remember what it was. Anyway, so I finally get back into the neurologist um, and he's just like, yeah, look, like you've had severely damaged the, the the lower part of your olfactory where that sensory gland is. Um, oh, and something I'd skipped over, sorry, was once I realized I couldn't smell, um, I, I then gradually lost the ability to taste um, and that became really weird because that was a gradual thing. It wasn't an all at once thing. And that's when the neurologist kind of ramped up all these scans to get results and what have you is because I was then losing an additional sense that I thought, you know, if there was still a bleed in my brain and or something like that, then, you know, it needed to be addressed. Um, thankfully there wasn't a current bleed, but there was like a severe amount of like scar damage done to the bottom of the, of the, of my old factory. Um, and then he said, you know, for for whatever reason, we'd never worked this out, but he kind of said, you know, ha ha ha, like, you know, you would have been really good if you ever worked in wine. And I was like, oh, jokes on you. Like I own a wine bar. Why? And he, and, and he pointed this thing out on my scans where the, the, the glands itself had overgrown and it's, it's a phenomenon that can occasionally happen, but it basically allows people to have a heightened sense of smell but because it was longer than the rest of the olfactory, it was more susceptible to damage through trauma. Um, so that's the whole irony of the situation. Yeah. So I, yeah. So my, my gift is now my, my dread. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's it been like for you running a venue and, um, you know, with a career that relies on your senses, Has, have you had to change and adapt what you do? Hugely. Um, you know, I think, you know, GG's was never, it's not about me and it's not about Isabel or, or our previous business partners. It's, it's always been about the bar itself and the people that are in it. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, whether it was Jackie, our, our first chef that we had, or Justin that came after and then, and then Sav, that was probably the most instrumental chef that we had. You know, these people have all all left lasting impressions. And whenever they've been in the business, we've always, you know, been so proud to work with people like that. And we've always jumped up and down and, and, and sang about them, you know, and deservedly so, because 
they are literally the people that are bringing people into my business. They, you know, they they are substituting people spending money and allowing us to do what we do. And you know, for that and and a lot of our staff, we are so grateful because of what they do. And I think that that's really allowed me to to step back from the business in in that regard. You know, not get so caught up on on being the only one that orders the wine and and writes the wine list and you know, it was the same with the chefs. Like I'm not a fucking qualified chef. I'm not going to tell you what should be on the menu or, or how we should be doing stuff. Like just go baby, make it fucking fun. I'll tell you when to stop sort of thing. Um, and so I think that, that, you know, since this accident, it's really allowed me to, to just take on a different perspective of the business, you know, stop focusing on the, you know, making sure that the wine list is a hundred percent perfect. It, it's been more like, right, like where, where can I be useful now? What can I look at? And looking into the actual analytics of the business and really investing myself into that side of it and making sure that structurally it's sound and, you know, just making sure that it can continue to grow without me, because I think that it, it has to, it's, it's really about the people that are in the business and, you know, the same with the front of house guys, like we adore them so much and, you know, we've got some really, really fucking cool people that work for us and some really unique people and oh, I adore them. It's yeah, it's it's been really cool. It's 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 I I think I enjoy work more these days. You know, I'm so, so motivated by it and just going in there and the people that, that work for us and then the people that come in and you know, I, I don't have to be selling wine and I don't have to be on the floor selling dishes. I I get to really enjoy talking to people and hosting and, you know, I can still sell wine. Like I still, I still know wine. Um, you know, obviously there's, there's been a big shift in, you know, when new wine comes out new vintages or new cuvées or what it may be. And for the most part, depending on the producer, you can completely understand the, how the style of the wine is going to be, what to expect from it. Um, but you know, there's also sometimes you get a lot of variation vintage vintage or, or a new producer and what have you. And I think that's been the saddest bit for me is I've got some, some winemakers that I'm just head over heels for in terms of, you know, their styles that I used to really love drinking and I'm seeing them bring out this really fucking cool stuff. And I'm just like, I really wish I could enjoy that. Like I really, I, I, I can feel like I can taste it and I get the, like this real emotional response and, you know, I feel my mouth start to salivate and then you go to taste it and it's just not there. So there's good, there's really great parts and there's some, there's some pretty sad parts. Well, you've won uh, wine bar of the year um, just recently. How, how does it feel getting that acknowledgement given the last year that you've had personally? Mind bending. Unreal. It's, it's, it's unreal. It's, you know, for us, you know, that award was probably it. That's probably like the, the pinnacle, I suppose, of our industry from, from a national point of view that you could really hope to win. Um, and it, it, it leaves the, well, what's next sort of thing, but it's, oh, it's, it feels good. It feels like everything we've put into it, um, is really starting to, to show, you know, it, it's been a pretty turbulent time. There's been a lot of change in the business, a lot of, a lot of growth, you know, a lot of money spent with the expansion and, and delays. And it's, it's been a troubling year. And then my dad had a pretty severe stroke at the start of the year and he was in America when that happened. And it feels like it was blow after blow after blow after blow. Um, but these last two weeks have been 
phenomenal. We, we feel on top of the world to, to take out that award. And then that same weekend, I ran a half, a half marathon uh, for the Australian Stroke Foundation. It's, I feel excited. I feel humbled. I feel grateful. Well, it's absolutely extraordinary um, what you do and um, incredible life change for you, over the, particularly over the last year. What, what do you love about what you do? I love the excitement. I, lo- I love the joy that it brings. I think that, you know, a lot of the time people can get really caught up in a venue that the food needs to be, you know, AAA, the drinks need to be AAA, you know, the service needs to be AAA. And I think that, you know, yes, there is definitely a demographic for that. But I think that for the most part, and specifically of a COVID, if, if, if the consumers have taught us anything is like they, they want to, they, they believe in loyalty and they want to spend with where they know the money is going. So I think that as independent venues, we've been very lucky with that. And I think that, you know, we need to keep striving for that. And I think that that's, that's what I'm really enjoying. That's, you know, being able to be on the floor and, and provide and create an experience because that's what separates one venue to the next is the experience, you know, you know, for the most part, you, know, you can recreate dishes elsewhere and, you know, you can cook at home, but people go out with the expectation for an experience, you know, Jeremy and Chris always did it really beautifully. It's like, you know, actually, I think, I think you were talking to someone the other day and I also think they said something very similar is, is this idea that, you know, ah, oh, sorry, I apologize. That was Ruthie Rogers. Um, she did when she did her podcast with Jake Gyllenhaal, I think. But anyway, the whole idea is, is that, you know, that the venue is a theater and, you know, people are paying for a show, you know, that the food, uh, you know, the props and, you know, the finesse and the storyline as are the drinks, you know, the staff, uh, the, the actors and bringing the experience and it's building that whole concept together and providing an experience that's different from the next um, and I think that that's, that's what really excites me. And that's what, that's what I'm very excited for. Well, Wilson, it's extraordinary um, what you're doing and an absolute honor to have you on Deep in the Weeds today to hear just a part of your story and look forward to hearing much more of it. Um, so please keep in touch and we'll catch up again soon. Absolutely. We've got some very exciting projects coming. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au and be well. <laughs>